Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. From the small towns to the big cities, we bring you the stories that matter. This is, this is, this is the Our American Stories podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. We can't wait to bring you these fantastic stories from our team. We work hard day in and day out to bring you stories from everyday Americans. We tell the stories about this great country, a country that may not be perfect, but sure is beautiful. If you'd like to support us and all that we do here, 
Visit OurAmericanStories.com and go to the Giving tab. Join our team in the work that we do and become a part of all that's going on here. We are a nonprofit, and we appreciate both one-time gifts and monthly donations. It's for you and through you that we tell these stories. And up now, a Memorial Day special, the story of Jared Monty, a Congressional Medal of Honor recipient for heroic actions taken in the battlefields of Afghanistan, as told by his father, Paul. I think his lot in life was to try to bring joy to anybody and everybody that he ever met. Well, Jared was a very adventurous kid. There wasn't a tree too high for him to climb or or a hill. There wasn't a body of water too wide, too deep for him to cross. There were certain characteristics in him that became apparent as he grew. We like to talk about his life in terms of three principles that he lived by. The first of which was uh, to always try your hardest. And this we noticed with him, whether it was sports or school or anything else that he had to do. He was a kid that always gave 100% to everything he did. His second principle was to never give up, and that became also apparent. One of the stories I like to tell regarding that was uh, he was a really, really good basketball player. He was pretty much the shortest kid in his class, but he was a heck of a basketball player. And when he went to middle school, he tried out for the JV team, and he was the last one cut from the team. His fellow players said they were all gonna quit because Monty wasn't picked. And Jared got them together and talked to them and said, hey, you don't quit. You guys keep going, don't worry about me. So that passed and the next year, middle school, he tried out for the team again. And again, he was the last cut. And then the third year, he tried out again, this time for the varsity. And the varsity coach came up to him and said, uh, Jared, why don't you um, accept the position as team manager and you can warm up with the team before games, but of course you can't play. And he accepted that. After the second game, the coach found a uniform for him because, you know, it was kind of embarrassing. He was the only one in street clothes warming up. And then after the third game, the coach started using him as you know, a mop-up player towards the end of a game. By the end of the season, he was outscoring some of the starters on the team. At his graduation from middle school, when they were giving out the awards uh, for the basketball team, the coach got up and read all the names. And then when he got to the end, he said, he said, this last guy is the epitome of what an athlete should be. And he's the biggest mistake that I ever made in my 25 years of coaching basketball. What an honor to a young man and what courage it took for him to do that and to be that guy that, you know, never gave up, that kept on trying. What a character he must have had to do that kind of a thing. He always did the right thing. No matter what it cost him personally, doing the right thing was just part of him. 
You know, one day when I came home and looked in his room, his bed was missing. And I called him and I said, Jared, uh, where's your bed? He said, well, Dad, one of, my, one of my friends was kicked out of his house. He's sleeping over someone else's house and they don't have a bed for him. He's sleeping on the floor and he can't sleep. I don't mind sleeping on the floor, Dad, so I gave him my bed. Another incident, he came to me one day and said, Dad, uh, would you mind if I cut down one of those spruce trees we have in the front of the house? I said, well, what do you want that for? He said, well, um, guys and I, we want to have, uh, want to have our own Christmas tree. I said, well, okay, go ahead. And it was only after his death when one of his friends came up to me and said, Mr. Monty, you remember the Christmas tree Jared cut down? And I said, yeah. He said, well, he didn't really cut that down for us. He found a single mom in town that had three kids and didn't have enough money to celebrate Christmas with the kids. So he brought it to her house and got lights for it and ornaments for it. He bought presents for all the kids and for the woman. And then he stayed and made Christmas dinner for them all and never told a soul. It's, it's these kinds of things that he did and with great humility. I remember a day when uh, he asked me to drive him to a weightlifting competition. I did, I drove him there and I said, well, when do you want me to pick you up or do you want me to come in? And he says, no, 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 I've got to ride home with somebody else. Now, after his death, I went up to clean his room and underneath his bed was a box full of trophies. He had soccer trophies and baseball trophies and basketball trophies. But what stood out was this three-foot trophy that was under the bed of a weightlifter. And I read the plaque and it said, New England Weightlifting Championships, first place, under 17 division, Jared Monty. Never told anybody. It wasn't being done for personal gain. It was just, this is something I want to do to, you know, for myself. And and that's what he did. It it just carried on throughout his life. And and the culmination of all of that was on that day that, uh, that he died. Well, it was his junior year in high school, and he came home and said, Dad, can I talk to you? I said, sure. He said, I want to join the Army, Dad. And I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I said, you know, you're, you're an A student. You're going to go to college, son. He said, well, Dad, you can't afford to send me to college. And I said, well, you know, Jared, I'll, I'll just get another job. He said, Dad, you're you're already working two and three jobs. Let me do this. I'll go in the Army, and they'll pay for my college. What was I to say? You know, being only 17, I had to sign papers for him, and I did very reluctantly. But, you know, like I had said before, he was a very adventurous kid, and this, this really appealed to him. This idea of, you know, the, the adventure of the military and seeing the world, and, and he loved his country. So there it was, it was made for him. He was a 13F Ford Observer, 
what we used to call the suicide squad because they were always operating behind enemy lines. That bothered me too. I mean, like I said, we called it the suicide squad. But danger, dangerous things never bothered him. You know, he loved the roller coaster. He loved riding a motorcycle. That kind of thing didn't bother him. And especially in the military where he knew how important it was to saving lives. That's, that's what he loved. He, number of times, got himself into trouble in the military for that kind of a thing, of uh, being a little more adventurous than some officer wanted him to be. I remember an incident in uh, South Korea where he had to take his platoon out on basically a, a war games maneuver and they came to a, a stream which was flowing really quickly. They were supposed to cross this stream and when Javid saw the stream he, uh, he halted his guys and said uh, you know what that doesn't look safe at all. Let me go out and check it and make sure it's safe for all of us. Now being a sergeant at that time normally you would assign that to, you know, a private or someone. But Jared always led from the front. It was always my boys, Dad, my boys. He looked upon them as young people that he had to protect. It was his job to make sure his guys were safe. So he forded the stream, but he ended up getting washed downstream. They all thought he was dead. But luckily enough, there was a floating branch in the water that he was able to cling to until they found him and, uh, and took him out. But that's, again, it, it, it was always a matter of him taking the chances and not allowing his boys to be in the line of danger. That's, that's just who he was. It's just what he did. And yeah, he ended up being twice deployed to Afghanistan. Probably the most dangerous area in all of Afghanistan was this area in the Kuna Valley. This was the place where the Taliban would come in from Pakistan um, this was their main route, and the army had decided that they were going to put a kibosh on this. They had tried a number of times and were never successful, but they did put together this plan. So Jared, uh, with his platoon, and Chris Cunningham, who was another sergeant, he was a sniper, and he had his snipers. So there were 16 of them all together. Eight of them were forward observers and eight snipers. And they were tasked to climb this mountain. The mountain was uh, 8,500 feet high. To set up an observation post at the top of the mountain to view the crossing area down below in the valley so that they could call in fire when the main force, a day later, was to come into the valley. So um, in 100 degree heat and all of these guys carrying you know, packs of 70 plus pounds, climbing mostly at night, 
They climbed Hill 2610. It took them two days to climb that. Now, as an aside to that, uh, the night before they left to make this climb, I got a call very early in the morning, got me out of bed. Got out of bed, I answered the, the phone, said hello, and I heard, hi, Pop, happy Father's Day. And uh, I was like, shocked um, that he would call me to wish me a happy Father's Day. And um, at the end of that conversation, he said, uh, Dad, I gotta go, we're leaving on a mission. And that's when they, they left to climb that, that mountain. It was hot, uh, they were out of food, they were out of water, and um, the army had made provisions to have an airdrop for them at the same time they were going into the valley so that the helicopter dropping their provisions wouldn't be noticed. However, because one helicopter was down, um, needed repairs, the army decided to postpone the attack into the valley for two days which left the guys at the top without food and water. And the army then decided to send in their supply helicopter anyway. The helicopter came in, it missed the drop point, and dropped the stuff way too near them, marking their position. As the sun was setting on that day, they heard noises in the woods that surrounded this plateau, about half the size of a football field. And at that point, all hell broke loose. Small arms fire, machine guns, RPGs, started raining in on their position so badly that these guys couldn't pop their head up. One of them got his rifle shot out of his hands Another one was shot in the, in the wrist and in the back. Um, the trees surrounding them had no branches left on them. And Private Bradbury and, and another soldier who had been kind of at the point, they were in danger of being overrun. And so they decided to run back to the opposite end where there were some rocks they could hide behind. The one soldier made it, but Bradbury was hit, and he was down. You know, it's like being in the middle of a, of a football field or a baseball field, totally devoid of any cover whatsoever. No rocks, no trees. And the enemy was still fighting at him. Jared called in for artillery, mortars, air support, danger close which I think people understand that means the bombs are going to be dropping so close to you that if you're not down, the chances are you're going to be killed as well as the enemy. And after calling in the coordinates, that's when Jared handed off the radio to someone else, and that's when he tightened his chin strap. And uh, Chris Cunningham had said, I'm, I'm going out to get Bradbury. And, Jared answered him back and said, no, he's, he's my boy, I'm gonna get him. 
he ran out to get Bradbury and he was driven back by the heavy enemy fire. There were at least 50 Taliban firing at them. And then he tried a second time and was driven back a second time. And, you know, not being able to give up and wanting to do the right thing, out he went the third time. That's when he was hit by the RPG and he was killed. And that's, that's what led up to him receiving the uh, Medal of Honor. I haven't gotten through it. Um, next month will be 15 years, and I'm still stuck in it. No one should lose a child. It's not supposed to happen that way. It's, uh, you know, the parents go first, and the, and the children grieve for them. I'll never forget that night, 9.45 p.m. I'm sitting watching America's Got Talent and my doorbell rang and um, I saw two men come around the side of the house in uniform and I knew immediately. You know, you answer the door and you get the government response. Um, you know, we... Uh, we need to inform you that, you know, your son was, was killed in action. And from that moment on, you just, you're off somewhere. I remember sitting down with them at the dining room table and having a stack of papers shoved in front of me and asked to sign this, sign this, sign this, and you just go through the motions. You don't want to believe what they're saying. You want to think that someone made a mistake. Um, I was so, I, I was so messed up. I mean, his guys, they couldn't believe what happened. Monty was so revered to them that nothing could ever happen to him. To this day, they have the same feeling. They all. I don't think any of them have ever gotten over what happened. He wasn't just, you know, their sergeant. He was their friend. Yeah, I'm your boss and I'm gonna, you know, guide you, but I'm gonna be your friend. Back in the States, every weekend, he would either be going to someone's house to help them put in a floor or he was having a barbecue for them, or if there was a celebration for one of their children, he would be there. He took care of them as if they were, and indeed they were his brothers. That's where my pride comes in, that he was such a good human being, that I wonder if I'm even worthy to be called his father. It's really very, very difficult to understand that a person like this is related to you, never mind being your own son. I wasn't even expecting the truck um, when they delivered 
all his stuff from his apartment in New York. The last thing that came off was his truck. And I was like, wow. There was a empty bottle. Well, it wasn't quite empty on the floorboards. Um, he liked his chaw, so he always had a bottle with him to spit into. <laughs> so that, was, that was in there. He had toothpaste in there. He had mouthwash. He had a toothbrush. He had, yeah, he had a little container of coins. He had, uh, oh, Lord. Just, you know, a guy's truck. I mean, it's pretty much the same even now, 15 years later, as it was when he left. I never vacuumed it. It sure needs it, but I just don't want to remove his DNA. I don't want that sucked up by a vacuum cleaner. So, yeah, it's a little messy, but um, it's, it's him and he's with me when I drive it. So I don't drive it as much as I used to. It was my everyday vehicle for a while and then I realized that it had to be preserved. So um, I got another vehicle, but I still make sure I drive his truck whenever whenever I can, at least once a week to get it out and running. Some people have said, you know, time heals all wounds. It, it doesn't. It, it absolutely doesn't. I'm 15 years in and it's almost like it happened yesterday. This is the way it is. The way my life is now, you know, there's a door in front of me with my son's name on it. And I'm expecting to be able to open that door and go and visit him and go to sports games with him and go fishing with him and just have him over my house for a barbecue um, to hold his kids, my grandkids on my lap. Um, that's what I expect when I open that door. But when I actually reach out and open that door, it's just totally dark inside. There will be no barbecues in the backyard. There will be no Red Sox games. There will be no fishing trips. Um, there will be no grandkids. I know the Lord works in very mysterious ways, and I know that no matter who you are, when a loved one dies, you always have that question, why God? But I was actually able to answer that question. The whole thing that came about from my son's death, the fact that we now have a charity that places flags on every grave at the National Cemetery in Porn, every Memorial Day and every Veterans Day, now placing 77,000 flags. Um, the fact that we were able to give out $16,000 in scholarship money this year, the effect that Jared's had on so many people, especially young people throughout the entire country, indeed in some cases the world, it seems to me that uh, God looked down and he said, uh, you know, Jared, you're doing a fabulous job on that planet, but 
if you come up here with me, you'll be able to do even more. And that's what he's been doing since he passed. Even more. And a spectacular job by Monty, as always. And my goodness, what a piece of storytelling from Paul Monty. I haven't gotten through it. No one should lose a child. The parent goes first. He wasn't just their sergeant, he said. He was their friend. He was such a good human being. And by the way, if you want to help Paul help lay down 70,000 flags at military grave sites on Memorial Day each year, or to learn more about scholarships in his son's name, look up the Jared Monty Foundation. Google it. And that's M-O-N-T-I, Jared Monty Foundation. If you've missed any of our previous podcasts, please go back and listen to them. We have the story of a man who paid his own child support. The story of a recent grad that bought a sailboat and is working remotely from a marina in Florida. I'm a little jealous of that one. And also the story of Catholic Archbishop John Hughes and the battle he fought with hostile Protestants as Catholics moved into this country in mass. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories Podcast. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Jack Armstrong, he's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on, but we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. 
And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.